0: hey there welcome to motorcycles and misfits at the recycle garage in Sunny, Santa Cruz, you know, California. Jim, no,
1: the sun just came out. I had
0: to think about the weather, Emma, because I've ridden through rainbows today, I've ridden through mudslides. Um, Jim,
1: your life is riding through rainbows.
0: Huh? Rainbows and mudslides. <laughs> 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 the title of my, my new hit album. Exactly okay, very it. good.
1: Well, I'll buy a copy.
0: So obviously, as you can tell, uh, this is not Liza uh, producing today's podcast. Well, Liza's but, on
1: the soundboard, aren't yeah. you, darling? Hey there.
0: Liza's working for me today uh um, but in the garage this well, i guess it's afternoon morningish something like that
1: well it depends on where you are in the world
0: it's a lovely brunch weekend here it's the a garage. brunch
1: weekend and at the recycle garage
0: joining naked jim in the garage we have liza hey there and lovely emma
1: oh hello darlings and pass the gin
0: <laughs> and pass the gin from the left hand side um, <laughs> So, <laughs> so this morning, the reason that uh, you got us knuckleheads here, it's a special edition of Emma's History, History Hole. Oh, we're
2: going on that journey again. It and is it is
1: a, so dark and deep. It's dark and deep. Dark and deep. And it's a bit <coughs> dusty and cobwebby.
0: Yeah, Normally I tie a rope onto my belt loop when we go down this journey.
1: Well, I'm glad you do.
2: And, and Emma, this is somebody you've been talking about for a while that you would well, loved to interview.
1: This is for pretty reg- much top of the list. This is top of the list. For those of you that have actually followed Emma's history hole, and God bless every one of you, um, the very first person we talked about, we talked about two people, um, both icons of the motorcycle world. Um, Beryl Swain. First lady to ra- race at the motorcycle um, TT races at the Isle of Man. And of course, dear Beryl is no longer with us. However, we talked about Elspeth Beard. And just as a very, very brief recap, Elspeth Beard, first woman to ride a motorcycle solo around the world. And I'm beyond thrilled she's with us here today. Elspeth, are you yeah. there? Yeah. <laughs> I'm here, <laughs> hello,
0: Elspeth, from across the pond
1: welcome hello, <laughs> thank you so right now it's um it's eleven thirty in the morning, California time um Elspeth has kindly taken time out of her evening it's seven thirty in the evening with you and isn't it That's right, yep, it is well, fantastic so um brief recap. you rode a motorbike around the world um incredible journey. I don't even know where to begin. Well, Jim. I,
0: I think we can begin in, uh, you know, in, is it Salisbury Plain in uh, the UK?
3: Very good. You've been doing your reading. <laughs> it's not it's it's
0: not hard to find info about you, but, uh, but, but maybe you could start there a little bit. So, you know, some of the questions we tend to ask people, you know, how would you get into riding? Um, you know, what was, what was your first motorcycle ride?
3: Well, the very first time I rode a motorbike was a Husqvarna, which uh, a friend of mine was taking down to Salisbury Plain, and, um, which is a, basically a sort of army um, place where, where you can just ride sort of off, off-road, right. and, uh, which was great. And so that, that was the first time I actually rode a, you know, um, a bike. And I have to say, at the time, I kind of thought it was all right, but I didn't, you know, I didn't think, oh, my God, this is absolutely amazing. Um, and it was probably about a year later, I I was in London, and uh, I sort of needed, you know, just sort of wheels to get around London. And a friend of mine was selling um, a very, um, it was a Yamaha YB100. And, uh, and in those days, you didn't have to take your test or anything. You could just stick, stick L-plates on it and just ride as long as the bike was under 250cc. So I just, I bought this bike from this friend of mine, Simon. Uh, I practiced riding up up and down the um, road on a Sunday. And then Monday morning, I went off to work uh, on on my bike. And I probably had that bike for about about a year. And then I got a little bit bored with it because it was a bit slow. So I then bought myself a 250 Honda and then i need to know. this
0: sounds awfully pragmatic so so did you love <laughs> a motorcycling come out of a utilitarian need or you know were you fired so it didn't sound like you were too fired up when you jumped on your first no bike.
3: Uh, i i kind of wasn't really i did see it very much as just a, a cheap and efficient way to get around london that was
1: it yeah no i agree with you i mean we've broached this subject before at recycle you know motorcycling in in britain and europe is very different to motorcycling in america in america it's been a leisure pursuit from day one Was in britain it's far more as a great alternative you if i was i was raised in birmingham and the same rules apply if you want to cut through the traffic and want a cheap efficient way of getting through the city motorbike Mm. baby
3: Exactly. And also when I was, I think when I was 17 and I and I bought the Yamaha, because you weren't actually allowed to have a, to drive a car until you were 18, but you could ride a motorbike on L plates. So, you know, it was quite normal for people, you know, for sort of young people who wanted instantly to have wheels as soon as they could, would be to buy like a small moped or, or a motorbike because it, it was either that or nothing. So. That's really how I started. And it just, I mean, I was at at an art college in Chelsea and and I used to ride from central London to Chelsea and back every day on my little Yamaha. And it was just, it was the easiest way to get around London.
1: That's fantastic. Well, if I may, I want to go back a bit further than that. If we were to go to the little girl, Elspeth, and we were to have a peek at your bedroom walls... I mean what would we see would we see posters of the Bay City Rollers and motorbike posters and pictures of Frank Lloyd Wright buildings I mean what did you have what did you have on your, your bedroom wall as a kid what were, what you obviously decided to become an architect but I'm sure that was later in life we already established you liked motorbikes later in life or later Yeah in- I
3: I I didn't have any motorbikes up on the uh, on my wall at all. Right. I, I, I'm. I, I think I had I had kind of posters of, of bands like you know the Who and Led Zeppelin yeah. and David Bowie.
2: They didn't have any Julia Morgan Julia Morgan posters in.
3: Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> And, uh, and, I, and there's an artist here called William Blake, who, who I really loved at the time. So I had a lot of his pictures up on my wall. Um, and that was it. But I didn't have any motorbikes. It was really, I mean, the whole motorbike thing was a very slow progress slow and- gradual thing it was yeah and then so after I bought my yeah so after the Yamaha I bought my Honda 250 and I think it was that that I actually for the first time realized that you could use a motorbike to sort of travel you know a reasonable distance because before literally I just kind of popped around town and, and hadn't gone even out of London on it and so when I got the 250 it was the first time I started to do slightly longer trips. And so I'd go down to, to Brighton to see my gran and all this kind of thing. And and I suddenly and, – and, and then it was – and I think it was after I, I took my test. Um, and once I took my test, I could buy any size bike that I wanted. Um, and it was shortly – I probably had the Honda – probably for about a year as well. Um, and then it was Alex who was this, this boyfriend I was very much in love with at the time and I sort of ended up buying the BMW, I suppose, almost to sort of Im, Im, impress him as much as anything. Um, and I bought the BMW and, and I instantly, I, I, I just loved, and I think it, it was really the BMW was when I started to really enjoy riding a motorbike was this the r60 yes yes the r60 the one i did the my round the world trip on and i think that was the uh, and i really started to you know i would just go out for a bike ride which i hadn't done previously you know every other trip i'd done i'd always have, have a purpose or i was always going to see somebody but but the minute i got the r60 it was the first time i would just take the bike out and just go for a ride which I'd have to say I'd never done previously.
0: Oh, I was just gonna have Emma briefly put her thoughts on the on that motorcycle.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I um before I came to the recycle garage, I used to work a lot at a uh, local museum. And still do from time to time. And we had a nineteen seventy four R sixty six come in for restoration. Yeah. And I thought, oh, okay. Um, And this is how I found out about you in the first place because when you Google images of our 60s, inevitably your picture pops up. So I thought, who Mm. who is this woman? So then we do a little bit of research. But back to the bike, I looked at this thing and I thought, well, it's a 600cc BMW. There's nothing very exciting about it. I'll restore it, put it on display in the museum. But it's a living museum. Everything in there runs. So I thought I'll take it out for a couple of couple of rides when I finished it, see how it rides. And I fell in love with that thing. (laughs) I would get on that bike and just ride it up to San Francisco and back, just because it's that kind of bike. I mean, what an inspired choice! So you bought this thing just, I guess, because it was there, but fell in love with it afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I'd kind
3: of always wanted a BMW. I I just liked because they kind of looked a bit different i suppose with a kind of cylinder sticking out out the side right and i also knew being a german bike it was going to be reliable it was going to be well well made but then to be honest i really didn't know what i was buying i mean apart from it was really only my and in fact i bought it i bought it without even riding it it was destiny. i just looked at it and i thought it was destiny, exactly. <laughs> and um, but but it but it really was. It, it, I mean, they're sort of very understated bikes. They they just do everything well, but very quietly. In the, it, it it's it's hard to explain. But they just they just yeah, they just do everything really really well uh, w- w- you know without making a big show about it all
1: it's you know i understand completely and knowing now that you have a background in art and we all know that uh, you gain qualifications as an architect but i understand that the design is a very very important factor for you and you can slice mm. it and dice it any way you want but bmw's are extremely well designed motorbikes mm. so if we can move forward, so you've got the R60, you bought it to impress a boyfriend who you were desperately in love with. <laughs> At some stage, you an idea popped into your head. I'm going to ride this bike around the world. Can you tell us about that that decision-making process? Because I don't even want to talk about when it became reality. We're going to talk about that in a little while. But I want to talk about when that idea popped into your head.
3: It, it, yeah, again, it, it was a bit like my, you know, my whole um, uh, thing of starting to ride bikes. It was a very slow and gradual thing. So when I got my R sixty, the first trip I did is I rode up to Scotland on my own. And I did a two or three week trip and rode all around Scotland. And then I think the following Easter holidays or something, I rode, I took it over to Ireland and I rode around Ireland. And then the year after that, I thought I'll I'll be a little bit more adventurous. So uh, I rode it around Europe. and and I think it was probably when I was riding it around Europe, I actually thought to myself, I wonder whether it's possible. And I think I was almost just asking myself the question, which I know now seems a bit daft because the world is obviously a much smaller place. But you know, in the early '80s, you know, the world was was a very different place, and. You know, it, 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 and I literally asked myself, I wonder whether it's actually possible to ride a motorbike around the world. And I think that's where and then I think that little seed had been sown um, and then it sort of went on from there. And it was really a whole sort of um, combination of things that happened to me um, that made me decide that I was going to go and, and try to ride my bike around the world.
1: That is fantastic. I mean, it seems like everything has been a progression. There's no epiphany, there's no pivotal moment. You built up, you know, we just did a show about an American uh, woman, Bessie Stringfield. And Bessie was um, the first woman to ride solo across America. Um, she did her trip in 1930. And as a black woman, I mean, the hurdle she faced wow. must have been tremendous. But there are, there are great similarities between her story and yours. I mean, she was the first. She was a lifelong lover of Harley Davidson's, just as you're a lifelong lover of BMWs.
0: She started in Boston. You started in New York.
1: Right. Um, and she kind of, like you, it was a gradual progression what she used to do was stick pins in a map or i what was it throw a marble onto a map and then right <laughs> to that point um and build up for her across the country trip and it seems like the you made trips and they gradually got larger and then that's it we're gonna do the round the world trip so talk about that so what kind of planning i think just about all of our listeners have seen um the Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman thing, and the organization they did. I mean, they set up an office in London before they even considered making the trip. I'm guessing yours was a little more spontaneous than that. What what kind of planning did you do? So, right, we're going to make this trip. What was the time scale between you saying, we're definitely going to make this trip and actually embarking on it?
3: Well, in the summer of 1982 was when I finished my first three years architecture training. And when I was at architectural college uh, was where I met Alex, who I was madly in love with, who I the reason I bought like. and um, it was and Alex basically dumped me about three months before I was taking my finals. so I was feeling very miserable, very downhearted, um, and c- consequently I did really badly in my finals. Oh, no. so I actually ended up with yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't quite fail, but it it was a you know it was pretty close to a fail. So I was sort of left in you know in the middle of the year, June or something, and you know I had a lousy degree. I'd been dumped by Alex, so I was really I was broken hearted. Um, and it was the early eighties in in England. It was when Margaret Thatcher had just been in power for a year or two, so there were no jobs any. I mean, it was really bad time to. To try and get uh, work. So I kind of thought, actually, you know, now might be the time to to go and do this. But uh, I think it's also important to know that at the time I had no idea I was the first woman to do this. And that's not the reason I did it at all. I had no idea. It was only about 10 years ago that I actually found that out. So I, I, I mean, the trip I did very much for myself and it was something I felt I needed to do, uh, whether that that was to prove it to myself or my family or my friends or to Alex. I don't know, probably a combination of all those things. And um, so, in the June, I decided. Right, I'm I'm off. So I basically worked. Um, I worked full time in a pub uh, for June, July, August, September. So I worked four months. Uh, I saved about two and a half thousand pounds, which I knew wasn't going to be enough to get me around. But I, I just thought if I don't go now, I'll never go. Um, so I thought I'd just take the money I've got. I'll get as far as I can, like, as the money takes me. Um, and I sort of hoped I would work, uh, manage to get a job in, in you know, in um, Australia or New Zealand. Uh, so I sort of hoped my money would get me as far as... Um, as far as that. And that also determined the the way I chose to go around the world, uh, because because with my limited funds, um, I, I was fairly confident I could get my bike to New York and I could get across America and I could get to Australia. And I was I was confident because the, the year before I left on my trip, I actually flew out to Los Angeles uh, and I bought an old R75 stroke five. BMW. Oh, I had one of those, and I—they're great bikes, aren't they? Yeah. Lovely. I loved it. I wish I'd shipped it home, but I didn't have that. I had to sell it to, to pay for the trip. Anyway, um, so I, and I so I'd ridden this R seventy five five from Los Angeles to Detroit, uh, and I left it in Detroit with my aunt who lived there, and she sold it for me later. So because I'd kind of done America, I I sort of knew how much it cost. I had a good idea of how much. Um, uh, money I needed to get across the States and then fly to New Zealand and Australia. So that was the re- reason I went round, because uh, I think a lot of people who leave from Europe to ride around the world, they, they sort of go the other way around. Uh, but I knew I didn't ha- have the money and I didn't want to run out of money in the middle of India or the middle of the Far East or whatever. So um, that was the reason I, I, I sort of went the way around that I did.
0: There, there's so many stories to talk about, but something I'm curious of, uh, you know, what part of America did you like writing in the the most? What part of the States did you enjoy?
3: Oh, now that's I actually loved. Uh, I loved the uh, I love New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, California. I loved all that. That uh, I, I just love open spaces. Actually, I oh. like I like nice. I like deserts. I like open spaces. uh, I like mountains, uh, you know, all that. I don't I'm not a kind of city person. I don't like um, crowded cities. They don't. uh, I, I like to be out on the open road and and I like nice big open spaces.
2: I'm with you on that, Elizabeth. I, too, did a cross country here in the U.S. And one of my most memorable moments was riding in the Utah desert with the sunset. And yeah. the amazing colors, and I actually have that tattooed on my arm from the perspective uh, with the <laughs> handlebars you know, uh, from the bike, with the the sunset and the mesas. That is, I agree. That is a beautiful part of our country. I'm glad you got to mm-hmm. experience that.
1: um She's mm. actually fibbing, Elspeth. She has it tattooed on her bottom. <laughs> <laughs> <Very
0: Yeah. good. laughs> uh, no don't ask no me comment. why I've
1: seen it. I was going to um,
0: make an arches comment, but, but no, I, I understand
1: way. completely. So, um. First leg of the trip, you and the bike end up in New York. You go across America. How long did you take to uh, go from New York to Los Angeles?
3: I think it was about four months I did the trip. So from New York, I rode up to uh, Niagara Falls. And then I, 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 tro- I, I, I went down to New Orleans and then across the bottom uh, to California. And I sort of pop- popped into Mexico and then, and then got to Los Angeles. And, and then I shipped my bike from L.A. to uh, Sydney.
1: Okay, so now you're in Sydney. You're four months into the trip. What was the planned route across Australia?
3: Well, when I arrived in Sydney, I I I I, I only had fifty dollars left in my name. So I had to work in Sydney for about seven months to uh, earn the money to get home. So I did two or three jobs when I was in um, Sydney, um, and then I. I rode from Sydney up the west coast, up to Cairns, and then across uh, to the to the centre of Australia to Ayers Rock, and then down to Port Augusta, and then across the Nullarbor uh, to Perth, which is right on the west coast of Australia.
1: Okay, Um, I know it's painful. Can we talk about the Queensland accident? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What happened? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I still
3: have no memory of it at all. I, 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 it, it seemed I landed on my head and um, I, I had concussion. I was in hospital for, for nearly two weeks. Um, uh, but I was, at the time, I'd met up with, with, these, with Tom and Ewan, uh, who were on one bike, and they were riding um, just Behind me, so they saw the whole accident. And apparently, I, my my front wheel went to this into this really deep pothole, and because I had so much weight on the back of my bike, the whole back of the bike flipped right over, and I basically, you know, I cartwheeled it down the road. Um, and but I have no memory of it at all. I was I was completely out for uh, about two or three days.
2: So I have a question for you, since you know we we're very all the gear all the time we're very gear heavy here what kind of gear were you wearing back then
3: well i did have a good helmet i i i i bought myself a full face bell helmet um i just had a leather jacket and my trousers i just wore jeans but i always wore gloves and boots so i i i i had a decent pair of boots and i had good gloves uh, but just jeans On my trousers, on my legs, uh, and a leather jacket, and and that was it, and my helmet.
2: Right, because I've been riding since back then too, and I I I tell the kids, kids these days, you know, back in my day, we just wore what we bought at the flea market or the thrift store or got handed down from our uncle. Like there wasn't really, there wasn't the gear like you have today. There wasn't that much protection.
3: But also. but also, there wasn't the gear for women. I mean, right. you know, they didn't make bike gear for women. I mean, I mean, the I mean the boots I had to wear were like size seven or size eight because of, of my feet are size six. But I, I didn't have a choice because that was the smallest size boots I could buy because they were all for men. And the, everything I had was all made for men. So, you know, my jacket didn't fit particularly well and my helmet, you know, it was all made for men.
1: Well, you know, that might have, truthfully, that may have been an advantage when you get out to maybe the Middle East. I'm wondering if a lot of people, as you go riding by, they actually mistake you for a guy. Thus, You know, you're getting a safer passage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
3: when I was traveling through Muslim countries, I just didn't take my helmet off at all like all day, I would just leave my helmet on. And when I was riding the bike, everybody assumed I was male. And actually in a lot of countries, I just did that. Even even riding around Australia, I, I would, you know, when I was riding the bike, it was always assumed I was male. And when I left on my trip, I had really long, long hair. Uh, but when I left Sydney, I cut all my hair off because I didn't have a plait hanging out out the back of my helmet, which which, you know, would obviously, people would then think I was a woman. So I chopped all my hair off and it really was just a way to – it was kind of trying to protect myself. Um, and, and I always liked to travel kind of keeping a fairly low profile. I, I didn't like to, to bring attention to myself. I mean, it, it, you know, in a lot of countries, obviously, if you're a woman on a big bike or even riding a big bike in a lot of countries, you automatically um, draw attention. Sure. But I always tr- tried not to if I could.
1: Well, you know, now is as good a time as any to talk about some of the the photographs that have been taken of you of the time. And the couple I want to talk about, um, the first one, you're sitting on the bike. Um, there's a Harley Street sign behind you. You look very young and very girly and very in love. I'm guessing that's <laughs> when you first bought the bike and you were desperately in love with Alex. Um <laughs> Is well, that... actually, that, 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 that photograph was taken about two or three
3: months before I left, so I had actually broken up with Alex then. We look very happy
1: about it.
0: He's a jerk, that Alex. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm going to punch
0: him in the nose next time I see him.
1: Yeah, we'll punch him in the nose. Well, well, <laughs> well he's, he's actually
3: still a friend of mine, so oh, you know, it's great. all right.
0: Well, I'm, tell him I'm still not letting him off the hook.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> But it, it's funny talking back to it kind of goes back to the Sydney thing and, and keeping a low profile um so the panniers that you are panniers panniers, panniers.
1: panniers. so those, those nice
0: BMW ones you know that
3: you see people adventuring <laughs> with I'm just wondering well, it, they were, but, but they were too expensive I couldn't I couldn't afford those they were like four hundred dollars and and then he had to buy the rack which is another four hundred dollars I didn't have the money, Um, and also with what I made, I could carry three times as much. Right?
0: Yeah. Well, will describe what you made because I don't think I can. (laughs) Other than maybe maybe a a pizza delivery motorcycle. It's a a small (laughs) building. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs> well they were they were it, it was i got anger i got bits of aluminium angle uh and i made uh the two um side panniers which which which, which rested on my footrests, uh and then i had this big top box that i put right across the back seat and the top box was probably about four foot or three and a half feet wide by about one and a half feet high um And actually, but when I was making... Yeah, i was thinking well it's 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 all light and it's all full of air so I, it, I might as well make it as big as i can and the other thing that i really hated when i was when i was travelling was when you have a bike and you have to pack everything really tightly in every little space because everything just fits in your luggage i couldn't stand that so i actually wanted just a big top box that that i could just open the lid throw all my stuff in throw my food if i bought a loaf of bread i could just throw it in the back So half of that top box was actually empty, and it was kind of, um, you know, space I just used as and when I needed it.
2: So I have a question for you. Um, Here at the Recycle Garage, we are very much into teaching people how to wrench and build and modify themselves. So when we see something that somebody has done, it really intrigues me. So my first question is, A, how did you learn how to do that? I mean, does that go hand in hand with being an architect?
3: Not really. I think it was, uh, I mean, I'm very practical and I'm very, you know, uh, and I like making things. I always loved making things. When I was growing up in London, I was a child. I, I used to make model aeroplanes and I used to make huge ships out of matchsticks and all that kind of stuff. I just love making things. And my dad was very practical and he, and he was always repairing his cars and he was always repairing the roof or whatever. And I think he, he kind of in, in, encouraged me. And I, and I learned, uh, you know, I, I learned a bit from my dad. Or I think what I learned from my father was that you could tackle and you could deal with anything like that. You know, there wasn't anything you couldn't fix if you just kind of took it apart. Um, so, I, I mean, I had that kind of upbringing. And then I think when I got my BM, I just bought myself a Haynes manual, uh, uh, you know, which just tells you how to t- take it all apart and everything. And, and I just read it. And, I, you know, if you can read and you've got a reason and, you know, and you're reasonably intelligent and you can hold a spanner, well, you can do it. It's really not difficult. And, and the BMW engines are so simple as well. They're so simple to work on. And they're really uh, and they're really easy. So I, I just, I didn't really find it that much of a problem, really.
1: So this is a perfect time to dovetail forward a little bit more to um, the second accident. And there's so many questions I want to ask you about the second accident. Oh, can accident. I
2: ask it? Can I ask it? Go ask it, Liza. What does dog taste like?
3: <laughs> well, it was it was very um, it, it had lots of spices in it. Uh, so I, I didn't it just
1: t- it just tasted like spicy meat, to be honest with you. it was fine. In. Oh. <laughs> no. but um I know that was quite, that, that was quite a bad accident, and why I kind of dovetailed into it with you fixing things? Didn't you tear the cylinder completely off the BMW at that point?
3: Well, it wasn't quite what, what happened was that i I sort of hit this dog and then i, I um and I I was on the road and my bike seemed to carry on, uh, on its own. And it went into a ditch and then the cylinder kind of caught the side of a tree. So the exhaust and the cylinder was sort of bent. It wasn't quite bent, but all the oil was coming out from the base gasket. Um, and the whole uh, exhaust coming out of the pipe uh, out of the cylinder was all bent against it. So, um, so i had to to do a kind of make makeshift repair um in in the middle of thailand uh which got me home so you know
0: it, well it's fascinating one of the things that i was really curious about as we touched on you know recycle garages are is is infamous for the janky repair i remember when jake <laughs> first came here someone had donated a non-running um 49 cc moped and liza said hey who are you kid take out the garbage and here's your project and the remedy for it, I think it had no air filter, so they restrict the airflow, was they crushed a beer can and shoved it in the in the air box, and that was the repair. But tell, well, I'm <laughs> curious, what were some – because you had to have broken down, you know, enough – in out of the way, middle of nowhere places. And at some point, we do want to touch on all the countries you've ridden through. But what are some of the jankiest repairs that you've had to make on the fly? Where-
1: okay, I'm going to put that into English for you because janky <laughs> is not. Um, you know, <laughs> what, what's the biggest bodge you feel you did? Or, or should I say, what is the bodge that you're the proudest of? Bodge? Yes, bodge. Oh, my
3: goodness. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Bodge. That's a very good word, bodge. Um, I, 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 know. I, I um, my ignition switch kind of fell apart, and I had to, I had to, I had to put it back together using rubber bands, and that got me most of the way home. Um, I don't know. I, I, think, I think the most useful items I had on my trip were rubber bands, wire, and tape. And I think everything by the end of it was held together either, with either one of those three items. Oh my gosh. That,
1: that is um, fantastic. It's- did-
0: Did you ever run into any, um, do you have any good mechanics on the road story? I know, you know, you and Liza share some similarities. She's been through Pakistan, and she has some good stories about, you know, how you make repairs out in the middle of nowhere. Did you meet any characters on the road that, or what's it like when you break down? Do people help you? Do they not?
3: I mean, actually, I had two inst—I had two times which was which uh, I was I was extremely lucky. Um, one time when I was riding across a Nullarbor in Australia and my bike caught fire. I was just riding along and all this smoke came from uh, under the tank. It when so that I happens. kind of jumped off it. And I thought, oh. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's a real problem. <laughs> and um, so I, I kind of tried. And I can remember I was standing there thinking, oh my God, should I go and try and put the flames out or is it going to? explode and blow me up. Anyway, I went in and I got a jumper and I kind of tried to smother all of the the flames and literally, I hadn't passed a single uh, roadhouse, nothing for like 150 miles, and I. And after all, the flames had died down, and and I thought, like, oh god, what am I going to do now? And I just looked down the road, and 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 about 150 yards down the road, there was a little blue sign, and it said auto electrician. <laughs> so literally, I just wheeled my bike to this to this place, and and it was and it was. And and it was this auto electrician who who came from Wales in England, uh, or not in England, but in the UK. Um, and he was out there all on his own. So we spent two weeks uh, making an entire an entirely new wire uh, loom for my bike, um, and we you know put the whole thing on and rewired the whole bike. Um, and that was it. But I mean, you know, to have gone all that way and seen nothing for hundreds and hundreds of miles and then my bike just happened to choose to, to catch fire 100 or 150 yards from an auto electrician in the middle of nowhere, I thought was absolutely extraordinary. You know
1: what I'm what I'm reminded of with this. Have you ever seen the Blues Brothers? Yes, I have. So that poor Dodge police car, they put it through all kinds of hell and it comes through completely unscathed and it gets them (laughs) to the courthouse in Chicago and just disintegrates on the sidewalk. And I'm thinking of exactly (laughs) that. This poor BMW, you put it through all kinds of horrors and it it wants you to finish the trip. Um, You
0: know, know, let's go ahead and do this one. Can you run down? It might sound like poetry or a rhyme, but can you run down each country? Because we're touching all over the place. Can you go through the countries you rode through on this trip?
3: Okay. Um, um, First, uh, um, right. America, Canada, Mexico. Then I went to New Zealand, Australia, um, uh, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand. And then I shipped the bike across to India, went up to to, uh, Kathmandu up in Nepal then back into india and then pakistan iran turkey greece europe back home
1: just i it's it's flabbergasting and the thing i want to touch upon is i'm not even going to say it's commonplace now but you know you can go into a travel agent and you can book a round the world motorcycle trip but when you did it no cell phones no GPS. It, it's, a, it's a staggering achievement. And the thing I like about it, no matter how many TV shows they make about Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman and anybody else, your place in history is cemented because you were the first. And I know that's not why you did it.
0: Even though you just it, found out about it.
1: yeah, <laughs> You found out about it 10 years ago. But kind of all roads lead back to you. It's fantastic, um, but I think. But
3: I think also. I think. You, I mean, I'm. I'm really glad that I did the trip when I did it, without any of that stuff, because it was a. It, it was a true adventure. You know, I had. I, I had absolutely no idea what was around the next corner, where I was going to stay that night, where I could get petrol, where I could get food, where I could get water. You know, you you just, I was just, I was just sort of going out there, just riding my bike. And I just had to, I had, I just had to cope and deal with whatever I found. And, and it was, and it was a real adventure. And I think now with all the, you know, the GPSs and the technology and, People can book things and plan things and you can fly bikes all over the world. I mean, I think it's great in many ways because I think it encourages a lot more people to travel because it gives them that kind of sense of comfort. Um, But for sort of me, it was, uh, you know, I'm so glad that I did it and it was a real adventure. And I didn't even know. I didn't know where I was going to be at the end of the day. I didn't know. I, I didn't know anything. I just lived every minute of every day. Hey, this is Liza. I have
2: a question for you. Um, I'd love to hear about your time in Pakistan. I've ridden across there, and I'm going back again this year. I loved it so much. But I can't imagine what it would have been like a couple decades ago. Was that uh, – how did you – how were people – how were you accepted there?
3: Well, I think I did – that was one of the countries I did keep my helmet on most of the time, If I, if, you know, during the day. Um It was, I mean, because I had a lot of trouble getting out of India, I only had uh, sort of two and a half weeks to ride all the way across Pakistan to get into Iran because my visa for Iran was, um, you know, was going to expire. So riding through Pakistan was... So, you know, it was quite, I mean, it, you know, it was quite quick. Um, and the problem I also had when I was there was that Afghanistan had, had, had just been or fairly recently been invaded by Russia. Um, and so the main overland route um, from Europe to India, which which had been through Afghanistan, was, was basically closed. So everybody, so all the traffic had, w- was going through the desert uh, in Baluchistan, where there really wasn't a road, so it was about three or four hundred miles of just just desert, where you just had to kind of follow telegraph poles right. and, and and tracks and hope and hope that they kind of led somewhere. Um, I mean, I think now there is a road, and I think it's all sealed, but it, it, I mean, it wasn't in my time. So I mean, it, it was a very quick. You know, I, I can't say. Uh, I mean, I would have loved to have gone to the you know right of the northern. Uh, bitter Pakistan, which I understand is beautiful. I mean, have you been there right to the northern, uh, um, you know, the mountains and everything?
2: Yes, all the way up to the China border and back. So, yeah, yeah it's, uh, yeah, the Kurokorom Highway. And I found that the people there were very, um, very accepting, progressive and hosp- so hospitable. That's why I was really curious how much things have changed.
3: Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I I wouldn't say they were that they were. I mean, I mean, they weren't. They weren't unfriendly, but I wouldn't say they were particularly friendly. I, I, I was kind of more seen as a slight like curiosity thing, I think. And they they kind of looked at me and they just just yeah you know, because they thought I was a bloke anyway, and then they you know they just left me. Um, so I, I don't. I don't have any really good or bad you know memories of of you know riding through Pakistan apart from trying to get through the desert which was which was which was pretty you know which, which was really tough
0: you know the 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 book the book ends of that trip you know leaving India and then heading into to Iran is fascinating but you know I I googled a little bit and there seemed to be some interpol information about some forged documents getting out of India I don't know can we talk about this here or <laughs> Is a statute of limitations? Oh, I don't know about
3: that. <laughs> well, that was oh, I, I tell you, um, the whole saga of getting out of India—I could write a book on it alone. It was—it was a complete nightmare, um, and it—it it, it all ended. It, it was a very—it um, was a complicated. Um, thing because when I first entered India, uh, anybody with a British passport could, was automatically given a visa for forty nine years, and I don't know why it's forty nine, but whatever. Um but you, you had a visa for forty nine years. But then when I was uh, when I re-entered India from 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 Nepal, uh, the rules had changed because there was all these these uh, trouble in the Punjab, so it, it went down from forty forty actually, I think it was 48 years, to six months. And not only did it go down to six months, but you had to register at a local police station. So I had this kind of registration document that I'd, I'd got from the local police station, and I kind of doctored that to make it look like a permit because I worked out that actually all the, all the guards at the border would have never seen a permit because these idiots in Delhi who I, who I spent six weeks trying to get a permit never issued any permits so i just decided to try my luck really and um and rode to the border and presented this permit with um confidence and um and they let me through so i was i was you know it's all it's all about bluff you know a lot of the time you, you just have to have the you know the courage and the nerve really to you know to do these things
1: this uh, it. This is high adventure, Elspeth. It's like an Ian Fleming novel. Um, and that's <laughs> what makes it so great. What I'd like to do is really talk about your life since the trip. I've absolutely no doubt. You don't make a trip like that and stay the same. It probably changed you forever. Your career's been in architecture, correct?
3: Yes. Yeah, so when I got back from my trip, I I did uh, I finished off my, my architecture degree um, and uh, well, first of all, when I got back from my trip nobody wanted to hear about what I'd done. There was no interest all the bike press, didn't want to know nobody wanted to know, nothing so I just packed all my stuff up put it in a cupboard and left it and that's where it sat for 30 years um, but when I got back from my trip I went back and did my architecture degree finished it off um, and then and then I came across this old derelict water tower, uh, which is one hundred and thirty foot high, that I decided I was going to buy and convert into my home. so I spent seven years doing that um, and then um, and then I started up my own architectural practice um, in nineteen ninety eight um, so and I'm just Busily working, doing sort of very quirky conversions on water towers, lighthouses, barns. Uh, I do all sorts of very strange and weird buildings.
2: So I have a question. But I, I like to
3: work on all those buildings. Yeah.
2: So which thing caused more people to call you crazy, traveling around the world or buying that water tower?
3: Well, I think actually probably buying the water tower, but (laughs) that's probably only because it's something – but it's probably only because they can relate to it a bit easier. I think riding a bike around the world is is kind of still something that people can't quite grasp. The water tower, I think because it's something that people can come and see and visit – it's and you can take pictures of it if you know it's it's a bit different so I think it's more tangible so I think most people think I mean most people at the time thought I was completely mad buying this place I mean it was full of it was full of pigeons and you know it, it hadn't been used for over 20 years um, so it, it was a real labor of love I mean it was a uh, it was a uh, it was a massive uh, undertaking
2: and just so Americans understand, because over here are water towers completely different. You're talking basically; it's it's a brick building. It's a like basically like a turret, and it's what? How many floors? Six? How many stories?
3: It's six floors. It's it's six floors, but each floor is about. Um, it's got about. 18, 19 foot high ceilings so in the bedrooms I've got these hanging suspended bathrooms uh, so each floor is almost two floors, so it's, it's like a 12 story building. So
2: in the top floor that's where Rapunzel lives? <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm just trying to get no, people... Rapunzel
3: lives in all of it. Yeah, I mean... It's Rapunzel just... lives in all of
2: it. It's like buying a lighthouse, basically. It's, brilliant. And it's It's so beautiful. I encourage people, if you just Google Elspeth Beard architecture, you can see this water tower. It's beautiful Amazing. in there. But
1: and I'm bu- noticing a pattern. I'm noticing a pattern through all of this. And I think this is what i find the, the the most fascinating and inspiring you just do what the hell you want don't you elspeth i mean you you don't exactly follow the crowd do you well i don't
3: i don't i don't think you should be limited in what you in what you attempt to do i think you you know you have to you have to go for you know you have just have to go for it and you know you might fail you might not achieve it um but that kind of doesn't matter. You, you you have to. And I think one of the things I learned on my trip was that I can actually I can do anything. You know, it really gave me the the, the confidence to, you know, I could tackle anything. I could deal with any situation because once you've done it time and time and time again, it just becomes second nature to do it, and a lot of the buildings that I convert and that's why a lot of my clients come to me is because they are really difficult buildings, and most architects just wouldn't just wouldn't be you know just wouldn't know w- what to do with them but because i I don't see anything uh, it, as something that that can't be done. I think you can do anything if you put your mind to it and you, and you, you know, if you're determined and you have self belief, you can, you can achieve anything you want to.
2: I love, I love to hear you say that. Um, it's something that really makes you a role model in my eyes. Um, I see you as somebody who I, maybe you've never been told that you can't do that. Um, because I know for a lot of women in society, they never try something. They don't try to ride a bike. They don't try wrenching. They don't try adventure exploring because a lot of the society says that women don't do that. So did, did people tell you you can't do that and you didn't listen, or did it never dawn on you that you shouldn't be doing these
3: things? I think, to be honest, it never dawned on me. Um, and I think because uh, because I came from a a, a, um, a slightly uh, un, unusual family, I suppose, and my father was very eccentric, and um, and we were just kind of bought up to to think that you couldn't, you know, that as I say, that there wasn't anything you couldn't you couldn't fix or you couldn't mend or you couldn't take apart. And and I think it was this sort of losing the fear that you were. You know, that, that you couldn't do it. And, and so I always had that, that in me that um, and I think the trip just sort of built on that because I, I dealt with so many difficult situations um, on the trip. But once you've once you've dealt with 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 things and you've managed to overcome the problems um, and you've managed to you know sort out your bike that's broken down in the middle of the desert with nothing for hundreds and hundreds of miles, you know, and you sort it out because you have to sort it out. If you don't, you're dead. And And so it's it's and it really sort of focuses your mind and. You know you don't really have a choice; you have to do it, and once you've done it and you've fixed it, then you realize how easy it or not how easy it is but, but once you have once you know you can do it, you have more confidence to you know to to do it the next time and I think it's that sort of and i think it's that's probably the most valuable uh, thing that I learned from the trip um that there really isn't anything I can't do. There is nothing I won't tackle. If I want something, you know, I will go for it. And I will, I will, you know, I will, I will try it. And if I fail, I fail, you know, but I will always go for it. And I will always try it. And I will never let anybody tell me I can't do something.
0: You know, something I, I love that you did, which is no small undertaking. And I know this is near and dear to Emma's heart is you fully restored that R60, correct?
3: I did. I got it going. I, I got it running again last uh, last spring.
0: What what prompted you for that? Right, like just decide one day, or?
3: Yeah, she she was just sitting in the back of the garage. She'd been there for eighteen years. I mean, I rode it a bit when I got back from my trip. But I mean, the poor old thing. She she's got well over a hundred thousand miles on her now, and you know the frame all twisted and the forks are bent and the brakes don't work but you know that's just what that's just the way she is you know i just can't got used wheel to it. It. when you can't wheel it and you slide it up the road and you exactly so um and i just i just kind of looked at it and i thought no i think it's time i got you back on, on the road again and i hadn't uh, so she hadn't been running for 18 years um and i literally i just I changed the petrol, cleaned the carbs out, uh, changed all the oils, bought a new battery, put the key in. And she started on the uh, I think the second the second uh, push of the electric button. She started.
2: So have you been riding all this time?
3: Yeah, I've got I've got three other motorbikes. So I've got I've got a BMW R80 GS, which I which is my main bike. I tend to ride, and then I've got my old R60, which of course I could never sell. And then I've got two sort of small off off road bikes that I do my my green laning and my off roading on.
2: Wait a minute, you didn't say what brand they are could they is it possible you ride something other than a bmw
3: <laughs> I, well i'm afraid i do yes um i've got a i've got a beta alp which is a uh, which has got a suzuki engine uh, that, that's a 350 and then i've got a little yamaha sero 225 which is a little off, off-road bike
2: nice and is this something that you've shared with your family because you have a son
3: I I did teach my son how to ride. Um, he's uh, he's got a BMW 650, um, but he he's I don't know. He he doesn't ride it that much actually. I think he he likes the nice comfort of a warm car than rather than a motorbike. But,
1: <laughs> well, but he's got his life. So. You know, um, if I might say so, without trying to sound like sickly hero worship, your achievements are. Fantastic. I'm beyond thrilled that you took time to talk to us at the Misfits. You know, you're an icon of motorcycling, and I think, historically, the picture of you sitting on that BMW with the panniers in front of what looks like some lockups, that is probably, in my opinion, the most iconic picture of a woman on a motorcycle ever you know the picture i'm referring to
3: i know i know the one yes that was that was taken about two months after i got home
1: absolutely and people are going to look at that picture and that's a snapshot in time and you own it you are owning that picture completely. What I'm seeing in that picture is a young woman who's ju- who has achieved something absolutely monumental and I mean the the confidence just shows on your face and it it's fantastic. Just before we close, I want to talk about your book. You've actually decided to write about your journey. When's the book going to come out? Bear in mind the majority of our listeners are in America, so how are they going to read it? Hopefully
0: there's pictures.
1: Yes. We don't read them so good. <laughs> there is. Yeah, there will be pictures.
3: Well, the, the book's being published in the UK. Uh, it's going to be published on the 6th of July. Um, and then it should be published in America towards the end of the year.
1: Fantastic. And, I mean, these days with Amazon, you know, probably a lot of our American listeners – if they want to get a hold of the book, they can just get onto your Amazon UK and get a copy sent over to them. Um, what's the book going to be called?
3: Um, it's uh, it's going to be called Lone Rider.
1: Lone Rider by Elspeth Beard, June of this year. Elspeth, it's been a pleasure. You, you, you're such a gracious guest. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I really don't know what to add. I mean... It's it's an incredible story of high adventure. Can you add to that, Jim?
0: Lies again.
2: I just have one last question. Why do you think it is after all these years that you're now getting all the notoriety?
3: I don't I don't know actually. It's it's um it was No, I don't. I really I I'm still kind of taken aback with the interest that, I mean, having got back and there being actually no interest in my trip at all, and 30 years later, suddenly, um, there's this great interest in my story and what I did. I just find it extraordinary. I really do. Um, and I I, I mean, I'm, I think it's great that if, if, you know, if my story can inspire, you know, other women to go out there and travel and do things, I think, I think you know, it, it's almost, I feel as if it's a... You know, my my whole trip is sort of almost done, sort of full full circle, and um, you know something that I did all that long ago can now have impact and uh, and inspire people. You know, thirty-five years later, and I just find that absolutely extraordinary.
0: Well, to to drive that point home, and we're fascinated with your story as well, and how it's been buried for so long. I don't understand, but my daughter and I, uh, Jake is her name, who just got back from a stint in Scotland. We're just talking this morning about about us doing this interview, and I was sharing her story with uh, your story with her, and she has a a bit of a traveling spirit. We'll say, I think a wild child. I think uh,
1: that is fair to assume.
0: So I think you are inspiring people and. Literally this morning, uh, my daughter and I had a conversation about your journey, and I could see the spark in her eye. And, um, you know, by seeing someone that's able to do that, you know, especially back when you did it. So I think you are inspiring people now. I know I'm inspired. I'm ready to go. Let's take a trip. So, <laughs> But again, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We definitely look forward to the book coming out. So I think we'll, we'll wrap things and up here.
1: Can we speak again, Alspeth? Yes, that would be great. I'd love to.
2: Yeah, hopefully when the book comes out. We can have you back on just to remind people about it and give you some promotion.
3: And I, and I, I do
0: have some good amateur acting experience, so when the, the it does come out and you need someone to play that mechanic, uh, you know, out in the middle of the nowhere, uh, I'm available. No,
1: I I think Jim, you could you could you could play the dashing Alex.
0: Oh, I'll play Alex. <laughs> <laughs> do, I get, do I get to take no. Elspeth out for dinner? I, I'm in.
1: I, I, don't need, I don't need to mention again, um, Elspeth, if you ever want to make a trip to California, you'd be most welcome here. You are very much one of the misfits. Thank you. I take that as a, I take that as a compliment. It's an enormous compliment. Thank you once again. You, you've been a fabulous guest. I'm beyond thrilled over this interview. It's, it, it's marvelous to actually put a person behind the story. Thank you for taking time out to be with us.
3: No, well, thank thank you very much.
2: Great. Well, on that, I think we'll let you go, and we look forward to talking to you again.
1: All right. Good night.
3: Okay. Okay, bye. bye. Cool, cool. All
0: right, that's it. That will have fun.
2: So, Emma, how does it feel now that you've had the opportunity to interview one of your icons, your idols?
1: You know, she, she's actually, I think, more amazing the the, the more I talked to her, just the magnitude of her journey was really snapped into focus. But what a gracious person. She's a fantastic person to interview.
2: I know. I know. And I feel like, oh, I have to be on like good behavior when you, I talk to these British women. You did because they're proper, darling.
0: Well, we did have a bit of a cultural conversation beforehand, but. I think it went well.
2: I know. We had the behave talk. But and amazing. And, and, and you know, another Guinness uh, World Record holder.
0: Absolutely. But
2: what I love is that at the time and, and for all these years, she didn't know that what she right. had done was so special. Yeah. And that's what she
1: said 10 years ago. It was only 10 years ago that she found out that she was the first. But. The thing that really brought it home to me, I mean, she's built this amazing life for herself. She's a very successful architect. She's got a beautiful home. She's raised a child. But she attributes it to the confidence she got on that trip. I mean, if you ride a motorcycle around the world solo, you can pretty much do anything you want.
0: If you want to hear some, an inspirational story, I tell you, this is a good one to, to hear about because, you know, that, that kind of summed up her attitude is there's really nothing that you can't do. And she proved it. I mean, when you break down in the desert with a liter of water and nothing for 100 miles, literally she had life and death, death circumstances that Absolutely. she powered through and pretty amazing.
2: You know, it reminds me when um, I was a kid, I used to read comic books like so many people do. <clears throat> and I remember reading this book. It had some story in it where this guy walked across water like on this lake and everybody was freaking out like, oh, my gosh, it's Jesus. It's a second coming. Who is this guy? And everyone was oh, in awe. And somebody went up into him and said, how did you just do that? And he said, um, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to. Right, And, you know, that's something it's it's amazing what you get out of like something like a comic book. But that was something that taught me when I was a kid. If you don't tell someone they can't do it, then they'll just do it anyway. Right. And that seems to be like like Elspeth. No one told her she couldn't. So she just did it. And it didn't seem special to her. I hope that there are people who uh, have you know learned this lesson in life, too.
1: Oh, yeah. But make no mistake. To world travel. On your own, on a motorcycle. It's a very special breed of person.
0: Especially when you go through Iran and places. <laughs> I mean, we're talking. That she's a special, special brand, as well said.
2: Exactly. But, yeah, such a brilliant woman. And, and thank you, Emma, for bringing her to our attention.
1: And, you know, I want to talk to her again. Perhaps after she's published a book. I'm going to put in a, an order for a copy as soon as it gets released in England. I'll read a book. And perhaps we can have her on as a guest of Emma's History Hole and, you know, fill in a f- few more of the gaps because we talk to her for an hour. It's very hard to condense a three-year trip into an hour. Well, a lifetime. And, and a lifetime beyond <laughs> that. So there's things I want to talk to her about some more.
2: And I especially love women who just dig in and wrench, too. That's so empowering. It's great,
0: and it's funny when when that both came up. They almost talked about it in a way that they almost passed over it. They didn't seem to them that it was exceptional. They worked on their bikes. They just it was no different than shifting or braking was the wrenching, and they didn't they didn't really highlight the extent of their mechanical ability, well, you which know, was interesting.
1: I kind of picked up on that, and I think part of the thing was both Elspeth and <clears throat>
2: stop. We haven't. We haven't yet released, so it's just she.
1: But, you know, the way that Elspeth talked about wrenching, it was like a means to get to the prize. The prize for her is being able to ride the bike. And the fact that she's got a wrench on it to get there, well, okay, so I'll wrench on it. But wrenching on a bike and being able to do it is a prize in itself.
0: She could make a movie probably just on each repair she made on the bike because oh, it's sure. probably fascinating Who in different parts of the world. Who do you think
1: should play her? You know, she should play herself. She she should play herself.
2: I was going to say um <clears throat> what's the woman from South Africa? Charlize Theron.
1: <gasps> oh, oh yeah. Ooh. Would be good. Charlize Theron. Yeah, I think she's badass enough. Yeah, she's definitely I think so. badass I think so. enough. So, um
2: Thank you, everyone, for for listening to this special edition of Emma's History Hall, going dark and deep.
1: Um, <laughs> I'm Dusty. i <I'm> mysterious.
2: <laughs> if if you have any people that you think we would uh, we should interview,
1: anyone that might be lost
0: in Emma's History Hall,
1: <laughs> you know. The last time I took inventory, there wasn't anybody lost in there, but I did find a bicycle.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Is that what that horn, that tooth was coming out? Yes. Okay. I heard that. (laughs) It's my bicycle. (laughs) Yeah. Um... (laughs) So yeah, send us an email and here's how you do it. Just go on down to motorcyclesandmisfits.com. From there, you'll find our email address, our phone number. If you'd like to leave voicemail, you can find links to our Facebook page, Instagram, YouTube, Patreon, all of that is there. You also have some pictures of what we look like if you want to put a name to the voice. Thanks again, everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. And if you'd like to buy a t-shirt, you can also find it there at motorcycles and misfits.com. On that note, let's get out of here. This is Eliza.
1: Emma Darling.
0: Naked Jim. Cool, cool. Cool.